if you have a tournament set of skills and you have a practice set of skills, you're always going to feel a disconnect between your normal ski day and your tournament performance. Hmm. Because I think that it has to translate. A tournament is just another ski set to practice your skills. Ski, ski or die. 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 Hi guys, what's up? Welcome back to the Ski or Die podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Montavon. And I'm Stevie Island. And we are back this week with a new episode. Last week we took a little bit of a break. Um, it was a tournament weekend for Stevie. And then just between you know work and training and cross training and life, we just couldn't get an episode together and we weren't about to throw something together just to make it happen. We will always want this show to bring value to you and your life um but speaking of tournament weekend stevie you had a pb at the end of saturday after three very unique rounds you want to talk us through your experiences round around yeah so this was my second tournament of the year it was my first class l or record tournament of the season mm -hmm. and it was at okahili where i ski a lot so i felt right at home it was with people i knew um, so that took a lot of the nerves out of it, you know, because I was around, you know, kind of in my comfort zone. And first round and second round, I had a bit of an equipment situation, so I didn't get the scores that I wanted. But third round kind of came together and got a tournament PB. It wasn't exactly the score I was looking for, but still excited to, you know, for this early in the season, put out a, a decent score and get one for the books and, and have some progress towards the what I hope will be a very good season. Well, I mean, I think a PB, even if it's not the PB you're looking for, is always a step in the right direction. And I mean, let's really dissect the conditions that you dealt with at this event, because this is very, this is the perfect example of a South Florida spring tournament. April tournament, Okehealy, it's probably gonna be blown out. You don't know which direction it's gonna be blown out from, but it definitely was blown out. So we started on the Turnpike Lake, which was a north-south lake. And they had the tournament broken up into two groups? Yes. So they did they finish group one before they had to move lakes because of the wind? I think they actually cut it short. Okay, so they didn't even get through group one. The goal was to get through a whole round before they move lakes, but they couldn't even get through group one because the north-south lakes were blown out so bad. So they moved the tournament to the east-west lake, which had a little bit of like a cross head. It kind of shifted a little bit, but um, it was more protected, and that's where you skied your second and your third round ultimately. But right. um, let's talk about your equipment failure on the first round. Yeah, so I mean, right out of the gate, um, I started 32 off, and it was a 32 tail, and it felt wacky. I had Chet driving a Malibu, mm -hmm. which is what I train on all the time, right. so I knew it was going to be right in my comfort zone. 
But right out of the gate, like right around one ball, I knew something was up because it just didn't feel right. I didn't get the angle I'm used to getting. I had a little bit of a slack line, and I was like, oh boy, here we go. And I knew something was wrong. Uh, I ended up getting two and a half at 38, blowing the tail at three ball. Uh, it's a tail 138, so obviously very upset with that. And I walked back and immediately checked my fin because I knew something was up. And the fin had slipped a lot. Mm-hmm. I think I lost like 15 thousandths in length. And the fin moved back five thousandths. And I think I lost like five thousandths or ten thousandths in depth. So I had moved a lot. It was a big slip. So going into my second round, I knew, okay, I'm going to Well, that was definitely a combination that's going to lead to loss of angle and a loose line everywhere too. Yes. I mean... It sucked that your fin slipped, but it also was great that you could explain why, you know, right, down kinda, to the number. Yes. <laughs> why you experienced what you experienced. The slip so, made sense for what I experienced, yes, which is always comforting. And I think when things like that happen, you have to just delete that round from your mind and move on. You can't base anything you want to do in the next round off of what you experienced in the first round. Right. Because that really wasn't even your reality. And that's happened to me multiple times throughout the, the off-season training, too. Mm-hmm. Because I, I got on the D3, the ION, and uh, I forget exactly what month, but it was last year I got on it, and it's been slipping like crazy. So I've had sets where it's like, something's weird, and I'm like trying to dissect it technique-wise, but then I go back and I see, oh, my fin slipped, so I don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. I just completely erase it, like you said. Uh, so going into second round... Uh, on the East-West Lake. East-West Lake felt really, really good. Yeah. It was behind the Malibu again. Roger was driving, and I was having probably one of the best tournament sets I've ever skied, up until the point where my skin, skin, my uh, my ski pre-released out of one ball going east at 38 off. Yeah, so I was watching, uh, I watched that both the first and the second round, and I was at the end of the lake watching your second round, you know, which is just a different perspective than watching from the side or from the boat. Um, but I thought that round looked fantastic. Like you were ripping it. And then I saw you, I actually videoed the pre-release and the ski just went flying out of one ball. Away. It flew through the air. <laughs> it became a barefoot event, event very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Ball spray. Horton would like that one. But, um, so I was pretty bummed about that. Mm-hmm. I thought I had blown the tail and then everyone was like, no, no, no. Like I saw it release. And so I went and checked and my boot was actually coming up into the release. Mm-hmm. So there was some give between the release which is supposed to be flush with the boot, um, you know, and the boot, so it was kind of raising up into it. And so I tightened the release, just a quarter turn, and that seemed to fix it. It wasn't budging anymore. So I was like, okay, uh, it was a quarter turn. I'm not too worried about it, like, not releasing, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because I'm sitting here with a sprained ankle now. Uh, <laughs> a week <laughs> yeah, later. we'll get to that. This has been quite a series of events. <laughs> but uh, third round, I felt even better. It was by far the best tournament I've ever had. Which I did run a PB, mm-hmm. um, but up until going into five ball at thirty eight, it was literally perfection for me. Like I felt fantastic. It was behind a Mastercraft with David James driving his own Mastercraft, and which is always ideal. If you can get a pro driver driving their own boat in the tournament, that's a, that's a round you want to capitalize on. One hundred percent. And came in five ball, gave it up to the boat, tried to safety turn five, do a little double clutch and. Came out on slack and didn't make it. So what happened? Did you not take enough angle? No. So I actually just, I let up really early into five mm-hmm. and ski straight to the buoy. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of knew what had happened in the moment. So I tried to double clutch in order to kill speed so I didn't have too much slack. Had too much slack anyways. I got really deep and popped the handle going through the wakes. 
counted as five, but didn't even make it over to six. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I wasn't there for that round, and everybody relayed it to me as. Stevie's the only person who's ever run a 38 and also not run a 38 at the exact same time. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty painful. Pretty painful. But they said it looked beautiful. And I think what's really impressive is after two different equipment failures, you managed to still put it together in the third round, which I think really speaks to your mental fortitude. And that kind of talks us right into the topic of this episode, which was much requested. Um at the tournament site by competitors this past weekend. And I think it's extremely relevant to the part of the season we are um, coming up on. And that is how to deal with tournament nerves, right? So performance anxiety, um, I think, is really prevalent because this is an individual sport. It's all on you in the moment. There's no oh, let me defer to a teammate when I need help. There's no way to take the spotlight off of you. When your name comes up on that running order, it is all about you. And that can be very nerve-wracking. So um, I think you and I both have very different approaches to how we see nerves and then how we deal with them. Um, and I don't really know if that comes from different experiences or we've been coached differently. A combination of both. I mean, I haven't really been coached much on stage fright or performance anxiety kind of just I've never really had too much of an issue with it so I guess I never really sought out coaching on it mm -hmm. but it, it is nerve-wracking I mean you pull out the gates it always gets me like the first turn of the of the, of the year I pull out for the gate and you're kind of on top of the gate and you're like oh my god like it's just me and this huge boat that's following me I'm like kind of just gives me this perspective of like it's just me out here yeah. And I don't get that in practice. It's only you know, only when the first time of the year is when I really feel that. And I can see how that could throw a lot of people off, you know, just being you out there. It's just you. You're, and it's really silent for some reason. Mm -hmm. You just hear like a little burr of the engine when it's just like wind flowing past your face. And you're just like, there's no one here to help me, man. It's very cinematic. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's kind of everything just kind of zones in. Um, I think that's why this off season I've tried to kind of artificially re I know what you're talking about. The first pull out for the gate at the top when it's like, this is the last moment before it begins. Right. Mm -hmm. Trying to artificially create that emotional environment for myself. So like there'll be days in practice where I'll pull up and I'll be at the top and it's one of those things where because it's emotional, I don't exactly know how to put it into words. I wish I could just like relay right now through the audio, the emotional feeling, but it's kind of like I talk myself into a, you're at the top of the gate. This is the final round. You happen to be the top seed. This one's like for the money. What are you going to do? And it's kind of like you take that big exhale, you know, and I've tried to kind of force myself into that emotional scenario um, at random this off season, you know, throughout practice. Yeah, so the classic kid is shooting hoops in his backyard and he does a countdown in his head like it's going to be a buzzer beater for, like, the finals. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Yeah, exactly like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I've done that too. So I think, you know, when it comes to tournament nerves, for me, the strategy that's worked best that I have been coached to and that has also been most effective um, is the concept of taking ownership of the fact that you chose to be at the tournament today. You registered yourself for the event, you paid the money, you got the hotel room, you drove or flew there, 
you spent the money training, the time training, you know, you had to get a ski buddy to help you, you have a boat or you own part of a boat, you've paid for the equipment, you have pretty much 100% ownership over the fact that you get to walk down on the dock and, you know, uh, take part in a tournament experience. And that in itself is a privilege. When you think about all the resources and the people and the opportunities and the money that goes into making one tournament round, because I'm talking about all the practice, I'm talking about all the cross training, I'm talking about all the equipment, PT visits, massage visits, eating well, all the travel, everything. It really is a privilege that people like you and me get to compete in a tournament. You know, this is not an inexpensive sport um, and logistically it's not an easy sport. How many sites have you guys been to where you cannot find it on Google Maps? <laughs> right, I mean, nothing about this has been easy. And if you put in the work to get there, the last thing you should feel when you walk down the dock is dread. You designed this experience, you have complete ownership of it, and regardless of how it goes, it's a privilege to, to get to compete in what is basically an upper middle class sport. <laughs> That's funny you say that though, because I always say to myself, pressure is a privilege whenever I feel nervous. I just run it through my head. Pressure is a privilege. That was um, actually my my like mantra. I would say going into the last event last year hmm. because I felt I didn't realize that I was going to go to Mastercraft Pro. So I thought Grand Prix was my last one, and I was done. And then I um, Freddie and Manon talked me into going to Mastercraft Pro, and I was like, oh, I get one more shot at this whole pro tour situation and for some reason I just felt like there was a ton of pressure in that. Grand Prix I just kind of went because a few days before it John Travers was like hey we're gonna do women in this event do you want to come and I was like oh sure I didn't have a lot of time to like think about what that really meant to me but I did have time before Mastercraft Pro so I felt like there was all this pressure because I wanted to make the most of the last one right and I kept saying pressure is a privilege Pressure is a privilege. There's a lot of people who do not have the, the privilege to feel pressured in anything. There's a lot of people who are just average. Well, they avoid it. Yeah, they or avoid, they avoid putting it. themselves in the situations that's going to give them pressure. You know, so I don't know if any of you guys know this, but I'm a musician and I've done a lot of performing throughout my whole life. I'm a singer songwriter and I did a, mostly solo gigs throughout my entire career. Uh, so. It was just me up there, like going back to skiing again. It's very similar. I mean, you set up all of your equipment, you take a million hours of practice and make everything kind of perfect, and you take on all these different performing projects, and then all of a sudden the moment comes and you're sitting there, and it's dark, and you have lights on you, and there's like, you know, between 200 and 1,600 people, whatever, out in the crowd looking at you. All of them just staring dead silent, it's like it's not like one of those bar situations where you're just kind of playing as background music and people are talking. It's like the dead silent performing situations where it's pretty terrifying. You know, I mean, it's silent and you have to entertain this silent crowd of thousand people. It's kind of nerve wracking. 
And I mean, because they're very intentionally there to be entertained, and you are very intentionally there to be the entertainer. Right. And there is no other way to interpret that situation other than that right there. Right. And you're just an island up there, just, and you have to be this beacon of performance. Fun intended. Yeah, it's fun intended. Uh, and going into the performance, a lot of people, I talked to, at Berkeley College of Music where I went to school, a lot of people talk about it. How do you prepare? How do you deal with stage frights? How do you deal with performance anxiety? And there's no right answer, I feel like. You just kind of have to get the experience out of your belt. You have to put yourself in high-pressure situations, and you have to learn how you deal with it well. Mm-hmm. For me, I like to do a lot of visualization, so I will just visualize the entire thing. Like the night before a tournament, I usually just think about my entire run and what I want to work on and how I'm actually going to do it. I know how the weather's going to be. I know who's going to drive me. I know what boat I'm going to be pulled behind. I just visualize how the whole thing's going to go. And then I try and put it behind me so I can actually sleep. Because if you're sitting in bed and you're thinking it over and over and over and over again, then you don't sleep well and that'll affect you. I try and just do some visualization runs, put it behind me and say, okay, I'm going to deal with this tomorrow now. Um, Something else I do is... I just practice and make sure that I have my shit together. A lot of people get nervous because they're not prepared. I think that's a really great point, and that was something I wanted to, I hopefully we were going to naturally get to, was there is a good chance that you are nervous in a tournament because you didn't practice enough. Yeah. You know, I, I know enough that in a tournament I'm certainly not going to try something new. I could try it like a four-round Whatever you know, I'm not going to try it in an event where there's a podium involved. But because I have tried new skis in tournaments before, but that was you know four round record tournaments. So I I am guilty of trying new things. But I take a lot of comfort in, you know, Elizabeth, you've pulled out for the gate right thousands of times. Just go do that again. Mm-hmm. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. You don't need to relearn it today. There's you don't need to have an epiphany today. Tournament morning is not the day to have an epiphany, and that's why I make fun of people who have lucky shorts. <laughs> <laughs> There's also people who will try and come up with some sort of new technique that they think they thought of that's going to help them ski well in the tournament. It's like, well, what have you been doing the past two weeks? Right. Like something different. Well, it's like, why aren't you working on that then? If you have a tournament set of skills and you have a practice set of skills, you're always going to feel a disconnect between your normal ski day and your tournament performance. Hmm. Because I think that it has to translate. A tournament is just another ski set to practice your skills. I mean, Chad has really drilled that into me. I'll be going to a tournament and he'll say, okay, I want you to work on this, this, and this, you know, sink or swim. Success or failure, we need to know if this key works behind that boat and drivers who don't know you. Let's go find out. And I'm like, dude, it's it's a tournament. Like, I want to make a cut. And he's like, no, no, no. He goes, because if the skill is right, you will succeed. He goes, but we need to know if the skill, you know, the skill fails. So I need you to go figure out, go succeed or go fail, but do the skill and let the skill speak for itself. He's like, do not modify on the fly. Do not change the game plan. Do not deviate. And that's a hard one to get your head around. That's tough. But it's also more simple, also. Kind of simplifies the whole thing. Because mm-hmm. you know exactly what you're going there to do. I mean, I think that I I can kind of have a lot of um, peace of mind. Because I'm like, okay, this is the, this is the homework assignment. Mm-hmm. And the homework assignment is to find out if it succeeds or fails. If I don't do the key, however, we'll never know. And that in itself is failing. So I have to go do it so we can get more data 
to make future decisions. So let's explore that a little more. Do you think that for the average skier, and what's the average skier, tournament skier, running like 22 off-ish, something like that? So for the average tournament skier, do you think it would be smart going into, let's say, an early season tournament, because we're kind of in early season time right now? Would it be smart for them to create kind of a micro goal like that? Because for me, on my first Class C tournament that I did in Miami a few weeks ago, my Chet gave me a, a micro goal. He was like, I just want you to go there. I want you to run one pass really well. I was like, that sounds pretty easy. I'll go do that. And I ended up doing three. Three of my passes I ran really well. <laughs> Which in hindsight is kind of sad and only three of them were really nice. But, but I think that shows you that that was actually a really good goal then. Yeah, no, that was, I think that was a great goal. So the first tournament season, I'm on a new ski. You know, mm -hmm. I'm relearning all my skills basically. I basically relearned how to ski this off season. Right. I think that's totally fair goal. So do you think that that would be smart for someone like the average tournament skier to do? Oh, I think for the average tournament skier, micro goals are absolutely essential. I think it's good for confidence. I think it's realistic. And I think it helps guide a more intentional ski season. So as they get closer to whatever their peak is going to be, um, usually for people that's a nationals, um, but whatever it is. I know some people, it's their regionals, you know, whatever you choose for that to be. Um, you can't pick a national school, for example, in April and just blindly work on it. I mean, how do you even pick the first step? But if you set micro goals that guide you directionally, I feel like that's just a much more realistic way to get to a bigger national school. I agree. Kind of gives you perspective. Yeah. Too. So how many people do you see, they come out, and they're like, if they didn't PB, they're really frustrated. Mm -hmm. You know, that happens all the time. Right. And, and you're not going to PB all the time. No. That's an entirely unrealistic goal. But chat giving you the, I need you to run one good pass this weekend, that's a good goal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was a good goal. And it really simplified the process for me. Mm -hmm. The visualization was easier, just like my whole process going into it. The first term of the year, which is you know going to be a little nerve-wracking, mm -hmm. especially the first set. Uh, it just kind of simplified it and made it easier to perform at the high level that I wanted to perform at. And I mean, what are some other really good micro goals for upcoming events? So if you're a skier who tends to get nervous in events, you know, having a micro goal might bring you some comfort because it takes the pressure off of the score, it takes the pressure off of the big picture and kind of gets you focused in on the reality you have the control, most control over, right? You know, I think some good micro goals would be, if you have a bad gait or you struggle with a, a consistent gait, okay, every gait I ski at this tournament, so every pass that I get a shot at every round, I'm gonna do my gait right. Even if I don't make it outside one ball, because if you can get your gait dialed in, I mean, that is the beginning of everything. That sets the tone for everything. So if you struggle with your gait, you know, maybe the first few tournaments of the year, the focus is just the gate. Regardless of the rest, the score, regardless of how many buoys you run, regardless of the, you know, the quality of the pass, get your gate figured out, finally. Make this the year that you get your gate dialed in. That reminds me of uh, Noah telling me about Casey Wilson. And he was in a tournament and he was skiing 39. I think he was either driving or in the boat. And I think he was driving, I think Vanessa was actually boat judging. Hmm. And Casey was flying into four ball, apparently extremely late, completely out of the control, but he just makes it through and runs the pass regardless. And Vanessa's like, Casey, how did you turn that four ball? Like, what were you thinking? How did you do that? He's just like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean, I don't know? He's like, 
oh, well, I just, like, pull out for the gate, and I try to focus on the gate, and then the rest of it just kind of takes care of itself. I'm like, that's a pretty sweet mental, <laughs> I don't even know how to put it. Well, like, mental focus in a tournament, you know, oh, I'm just going to focus on my gate, and then the rest will just handle itself. It's like, hey, that's pretty easy to me. I think it's also goes to show you that a lot of people undervalue the power of a gate. I mean, you, do you know how many people actually, like, they have a bad gate because it's inconsistent, and they know it, and they're like, I'm not going to take the time to work on that, though, and they want to work on the buoy. Mm-hmm. They want to work on their pre-turn. They want to work on how they reach. Yeah. And they spend all summer working on that when the rhythm, they're getting an in- inconsistent rhythm. Yeah. If you're getting a consistently bad rhythm, at least it's consistent. <laughs> you know, consistency I can build off of. So I think the gate is a great micro goal early in the season. I also think another great micro goal, and I never would have thought of this, but it was Chet's micro goal for this tournament you just skied in. And it was a, it's a really good point. So if you're somebody like me or like Chet who falls down really easily at the buoy, like you've fallen in a tournament and it wasn't a big epic fall, right? It was just a little, like, I call it the bloop fall (laughs) a great micro goal is do not fall down and that was literally one of chet's micro goals he was like i am not gonna fall down one round this weekend i'm like you're not gonna fall down and he's like i fall down too easy and i was like you know what fair enough because he always talks about how andy mapple is always you know skiing back to the dock and smiling and waving because andy did not fall down easy Mm -hmm. and he'll you know wave at you while you're swimming in because you went bloop at the buoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, not falling down, I think, is actually a great goal. And did Chet run as many buoys as he can? I never heard about his third set. He opted up to 39 and ran five. Oh, really? Which is makes it five at 38. Wow. Yeah. Painful. So he didn't, Chet did not ski close to a PB, but was the quality of the skiing better? Yes, because he didn't allow himself to use his skills, his bad skills, so dropping his head to get a little extra lean, um, to grab one more buoy, because he might have fallen. So he had to ski well to not fall. And if he keeps doing that, he will eventually learn how to run more buoys at a lower risk, uh, in a lower risk environment, because he's practiced not falling. I I know, it's a very interesting micro goal. I don't know if that would really apply to you. Are you an easy faller? No, you blow the tail. It's usually pretty ugly. (laughs) Well, blowing the tail, I feel like, is kind of like a little bloop. But sometimes it hurts my ribs, you know? I'm flying in a buoy, and and I'm really committed to going to the next buoy, obviously. So I, like, set my hips, and then all of a sudden, I'm, like, getting smashed into the water. kind of hurts. I hate it. I feel like I'm really good at not falling down if it's around where it matters. Like, I've watched video, and I'm like, you absolutely fell there, and how you're still skiing is beyond me. I think that's a trick skier thing, though, because mm-hmm. in tricks, like, you can't make a mistake, right? Mm-hmm. You have to execute the run. If you bobble, it could ruin everything. So I'm better at getting back on top of my feet, but only when it matters. If we went dancing, you would never know that I'm good on top of my feet. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but another strategy that I've used to mitigate some tournament nerves is... Having some goddamn perspective, I get to travel to very cool places and ski somewhere brand new on my Saturday. What's the average guy doing on his Saturday? 
he probably woke up, he's got to mow the lawn, he's going to, you know, kill a few beers, and he's going to bitch about, I don't know, his wife and kids. This is a very negative picture I'm painting. But this is, like, what I imagine my life could be that. Or my life could be traveling somewhere I've never skied before, walking down on the dock, saying to myself, well, holy fuck, this is cool. I've never skied in Seattle. Yeah, the water's a little bit colder. Yeah, the trees are different looking. Yeah, I still prefer my palm trees. I met a bunch of new people. This is really cool. How many people get to do something like this? Why don't we talk about Moomba then? Okay, Moomba is the ultimate. <laughs> yeah, because that takes some serious like perspective and, and ability to calm some nerves, right? You know, I mean, Chet prepared me pretty well. I guess as well as somebody could. And I've only skied one Moomba, right? So maybe that was beginner's luck that I had a good event. Stars lined up. I don't know. We'll see. Because Moomba is Moomba. You can go and miss your opener. You can also go and you could win. But Chet told me, he goes, here's the thing you need to know. Whether He goes, I don't care who you are, you're going to be nervous at Moomba. He goes, even the most seasoned pro, toughest pro is going to be nervous at Moomba. Because you walk down the shoreline and it's, it's a, the river's kind of in a valley, if you will, a little bit. So the river is lower than the city, which makes the city look bigger, makes everything look bigger. So you walk down and you're kind of walking down into like the belly of the beast and you walk out on that dock and it's a floating dock and it's moving like crazy because you've got a current and it's rolly, right? And he goes, you're going to walk down there and you're going to see the big city and he goes, you're going to see the water, the moving water. And he goes, you're going to be nervous. And he goes, you just need to realize how cool it is that you were willing that day to walk down on that dock. He goes, because a lot of people talk a big game. A lot of people say, oh, if I could go to Moomba and ski, I absolutely would. And he goes, let me tell you right now, if I took a bunch of people that we know in skiing and flew them to Australia and said, okay, you can compete in Moomba, they would absolutely not do it. They would be so nervous. And I was like, okay, you're right. So I need to just like accept the fact that it's going to be nervous, but I was willing to walk on the dock, take some confidence in that. Find some comfort in the fact that, you know, if you're willing to do this, it's probably going to go okay. And that was really what did it for me. I was, you know, he likes to use the gladiator in the arena analogy a lot for me. I don't know if he's ever used that one for you. Of course not. I feel like he coaches us very differently. Very differently. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like he says, you know, you, you walk down there with your handle and your ski and that's your, you know, your sword and your shield and you're going down there with all the other guys and girls who are willing to go down in the arena and go to war with each other. And that is what it is. And you've, you have trained to go to war. And personally, I, I thrive off of that. Like, I, I love that. And he's not wrong. You walk down on that dock and you're a little nervous, you like your knees are a little bit shaky and you walk down the dock and it's moving. I mean, for a floating dock and the current and the rollers, that thing is moving. And you're like, has anybody ever fallen off the dock at Moomba? Because I might be the first one. <laughs> that would be so classic. Ooh. I was like, my legs are so shaky right now. I'm about to fall off this dock and just float down river and nobody's gonna come pick me up because that's too embarrassing. We just let her go. Wherever that river spits out, we'll find her there. Nobody's safer. <laughs> but, I mean, I had to say to myself, like, oh my god, I'm carrying my ski through this massive city, Melbourne, Australia, right? Because I get to go ski 
on the river in Moomba. Once again, that and is a privilege. A, there's actually spectators, which is pretty cool. There's actually spectators. I mean, it's a whole... That's, that is how tournaments should be done. Moomba, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's food trucks and there's tons of shit to do. If you want to watch some skiing, you can. But if you want to do other stuff, you can. It was totally a family environment, family event. There was stuff to do for everybody. Um, the tournament skiing side of it was very well run. We were very well communicated with, um, and they were dealing with terrible weather, right? Which had, they had to re-put the ramp in and redo pretty much most of the course. Um, never ideal in a tournament situation. They handled it all very well, communicated to us very well. Um, and that's how tournaments should be done. But once again, that was a privilege even though it was probably the most terrifying set of circumstances I've ever skied in. It's not like Grand Prix at Jack's, right? The water was dead flat. You know, I could have got a set behind that boat before I went there if I wanted to. Um, you know the course is ever absolutely perfect. It's just ideal. And I love that. That's not a put down, right? Like Jack's is perfection. That's easy. You can go focus on your skills. Moomba, very intimidating. Um, traveling somewhere where the water is significantly different to you know your norm, that's intimidating. Like Seattle, that was colder. Um, we're gonna go to Chicago for nationals this year. That's gonna be different for you and I because we haven't been skiing in the Midwest. We won't be familiar with that. But we both skied there before. We have. But you know, for me it always comes down to it's a privilege. I like it. All right, well that's a good place to wrap up, I think. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We hope it brings you value around how to frame your mindset going into tournaments. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this quite a bit more into the ski season. We actually have several more tournament topics we want to talk about now that we're really getting into uh, the spring tournaments. But keep your suggestions coming our way. You can hit me up through the text community or on Instagram, and we'll definitely get them in the shuffle. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. All right, guys, episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean so much to me. And if you want to be the first to know about all things Ski or Die, shoot me a text at 561-468-3603, and we'll get you added to the community.